Today we are actually beginning a new teaching series, and it's a series focused on spiritual warfare and how we respond to that warfare in our lives. And I totally realize this. A series on spiritual warfare isn't near as marketable as a series on marriage, like we just did, right? It doesn't seem as warm or sweet or as romantic as a series on marriage, does it? And yet, I'll tell you, it is no less crucial for you and I to know about this, and definitely no less critical. I mean, let's just listen again to the language that Scripture uses to describe what we're walking in when we follow Jesus. For example, the Apostle Paul wrote to a pastor, Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.18. Listen to what Paul said to him. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may what? Wage the good warfare. That's what you're involved in, Timothy. Later on in that very same letter, chapter 6, verse 12, Paul adds this. Fight the good fight of faith. And it wasn't just Paul, Peter in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter writes these words, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's how it's described in Scripture. Now, if you were with us during the season of Lent recently, we spent a number of weeks dealing with this kind of whole idea of spiritual warfare as it's described in Scripture. And, and we spent time trying to understand what Scripture teaches about it, the reality of it, uh, the nature of it. And, and we spent some of those weeks looking at kind of the arsenal that the forces of darkness bring against us. And if you weren't here with us, I encourage you to go back and listen to or watch that teaching series on our website. But in this series, though, we're going to look at a, another part of that warfare. And specifically, we're going to look at our arsenal, what we use against the enemy, an arsenal that is called in Scripture the full armor of God. So we're not as much looking in this series at what is going to be brought against us, but rather what we can do to respond to it, how we can defend ourselves in the spiritual battle. We're going to look at our arsenal, our armor together. And the scripture passage we're going to be focusing on, really for the breadth of this series, is the last section of the letter to the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. If you want to turn to Ephesians, that's where we're going to be looking at to get together today. And the section we're going to be looking at, it's really the last major thought unit Paul gives us in the letter. And we're just going to work our way through it in the coming weeks. And I just, I want you to know how urgent it is not just for you to grasp this stuff individually, but for us, friends, as an outpost of the kingdom, as a church, in the stage we're in, in the age we're in, to understand and grasp this. All right, so let's look at this. And this week, we're just going to look at the opening four verses that Paul expresses. We'll be in Ephesians 6 and pick it up in verse 10. And remember as we hear this, this is a word of God. And Paul wrote, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle with flesh and blood 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says it again, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Amen? So here's the first question that comes to mind. Why did Paul use the imagery of armor? I mean, for his readers, why didn't he try to soften it a bit, give a kind of a warmer approach, a bit more friendly, more accessible approach? They would have understood the imagery of farming tools, right? Why didn't he speak using the language of shepherd's equipment or garden items or maybe even kitchen utensils? Why make this list entirely comprised of a soldier's armor? Because Paul's whole point here is, understand this, you are not just farming or shepherding or gardening as you follow Jesus. You actually are in a spiritual, supernatural battle. So back we come to this topic, this theme, of spiritual warfare. And did you note how Paul, in Ephesians 6.10, he starts the phrase as we read here with that word, finally. Finally. I want you to consider what would, behind that, would be behind that word, finally. And, and let me just kind of summarize here. Up to this point in the book of Ephesians, Paul, in a sense, has been talking about kind of the constructive side of the Christian life. So if we kind of stand back and look at this whole book of Ephesians, what Paul is doing here, just for a moment, you'll see that in chapters one to three, Paul is laying out there what God is going to do about the mess that the universe is in. In fact, chapter one is actually about the fact that the disintegration that we see, the disorder, the confusion in the universe, and we see it, don't we? Well, that disorder, that disintegration is going to be solved by Jesus Christ returning and being made king over all creation. Under his dominion, under his kingship, that which disintegrates right now will integrate. That which is in confusion will coordinate. And, and then in Ephesians 2, Paul says, having laid out that reality, he says we're told that now through the blood of Christ shed on the cross, Jesus brings that very kingdom-transforming power into our lives as we trust him. That, that's chapter 2 and 3 of Ephesians. And then we get to chapter 4 through 6 in Ephesians. And Paul begins here by saying, okay, now if all this is true, what I've just wrote you about, if all this is true, then how do we live? And, and then so Paul gets in all this kind of detailed teaching about what it means to, to live the Christian life, to live in accord with the realities of who you are in Christ. And so really the whole point of chapter four through six is, all right, because now you have Christ in you, because all of this is true of you through faith in Jesus, live it out. That's what Paul's saying. So in chapters four through six, Paul talks about what it means to change, what it means to take that old life, that pre-Christ life, and put it aside, and to take on the new life, the renewal of our mind that we have in Jesus. 
he talks about what it means to, to be filled with the Spirit. And, and then to take that Spirit-filledness and, and work it out into the relationships you walk in in your life. Like in your marriage, what we've just been looking like. Or you could say in dating relationships, or in your family life, or in your work life, and so on. So Paul writes about all that in those opening chapters. And then it seems like Paul could, but he doesn't, end at that point and say, sincerely, your friend Paul. Instead, what does he write? He writes a word. Finally, finally, Ephesians 6.10. And what Paul is saying just by that word finally is this. Do not miss this final point. Paul is saying here, unless you see the true context in which you are, are working, changing, operating as a follower of Jesus, you're going to make a significant error in your life. And we say, well, what does he mean by that? Well, let's put it this way. One author gives this description. Say you're an adventurer, you're an explorer, right? Got it? And, and you send out a group of people out in the wilderness to, to a far-off hill to build a fort. You want them to build a fort. So you send them off, you give them a blueprint, and you say to them, okay, you guys, you're the masons, you're the carpenters, you all know what to do. Here's a blueprint, here's a material. Go out there, do the work, build this fort. I want you to do it. You pack them up, you send them off, and, and they go out there and begin to work on that distant hill with the outline you've given them, right? Got the picture. But understand this. It won't work very well for them if after all those instructions you've given them, you forgot to inform them and say, oh, and by the way, in addition, you need to know this. It's enemy territory you're going into. So while you're working, building, opposing warriors are going to be attacking you, shooting you, trying to destroy you. I think if you were in the group, you would say, oh, that's an important safety tip. That, that's a good thing for us to know. That's very helpful to know that. Okay, so still, as a group then, okay, we're going to try to get this work done, but I think we're probably going to go about it a bit differently now that we know that's the context we're working in. All right? Now understand, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Paul is saying to the Ephesians and then to us, here's the Christian life. This is what it means to live and build this kind of life in Jesus. Here's how you live out very practically this life. But finally, you need to realize as you do this, you're going to be trying to build this Christian life in a context in which you are surrounded by an array of very powerful forces who are out to stop you, to destroy you. We likewise to that say, oh, good to know, good information. In fact, let's be really concrete here. Paul says, let me read again in Ephesians 6, let's read in verse 10. Paul then says, therefore, finally, in light of all this truth, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might, then put on the whole armor of God. Why? That, they, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil because they're coming. Verse 13, therefore, again, take up the whole armor of God. And here's why. That you may be able to withstand 
in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And I would kind of guess this. I would think just about every one of us in this room, if for a moment you kind of pushed away your biases and prejudices, maybe your blinders, you know what Paul's talking about here. I, I think you do. Because I think you know, maybe you've experienced, there are some days, some seasons, that just feel evil, like dark, don't they? So what's Paul talking about here, the evil day? Well, the evil day, it's a day or season when we sense that it, it feels like there's some power, there's a force maybe coming around, maybe shadowing us like a cloud, taunting us, kind of jeering at us, undermining us, kind of pushing guilt down upon us, tempting us, making us feel disheartened in those moments, kind of egging us on to discouragement, as though essentially something, someone or something or someone's out to get us. And, and I think you know those days are there. And, and there are days at times when you can't believe the way that everything seems to be coming together just to make things as bad as they can possibly be. I'm guessing you've been through some. And maybe for some of you, this right now, maybe this is one of those days, one of those seasons. And so what are you going to do in that? Well, a few options. For one of the things you can possibly do in those seasons, and I'll tell you, this is what a lot of people will say, is you just kind of shrug it off, you dismiss it, and you just view it as a bad series of coincidences. And maybe that's all it is. Or maybe it's not. Or another way to approach those kind of situations is to kind of get paranoid about it. And, and start to say, my life is going so badly because this person, maybe that person or that organization, maybe it's the liberals, maybe it's the NDPs, maybe it's the conservatives. You, you blame it on somebody or something. Or maybe still another possibility is to start to bring it on on yourself and just beat yourself up and say, yeah, the reason everything's going wrong, it's, I'm such a failure in this. I'm, I'm a rotten person. I just should have anticipated I would screw this up. I mean, all these are possible reactions. And Perhaps at times they're accurate. But I just want us to be aware of the fact that there's a fourth possibility. There's a fourth option, and I'll tell you, it's the most practical thing of all. You can say this is a day in which the forces of supernatural evil, man, just feel particularly arrayed against me. And I need to put on the full armor of God in the state to stand against them. And I want us to understand, that's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6. And he's given description how you do that in those days. Now, we're not going to go into how we do that with each element of the armor today. You're going to have to come back for that in coming weeks, all right? I woo you back. I invite you back. I hope you can come back. Because Paul says, on the evil day, in those evil seasons, put on the full armor of God. And realize in it, you're struggling with more than just flesh and blood. And as you do that, you will be able to stand. And I just want us to see that there is nothing more practical than this. And I'd say this at least a couple of times a month. Anybody who's trying to live the life of Christ that Paul's been talking about in Ephesians 1 through 5 experiences these kind of evil seasons 
a dark days in this way. So how do you respond? What do you do? There is nothing more practical than this. You put on the full armor of God. And again, in coming weeks, we're going to walk very specifically through this step by step. But today, here's what I'd like to do. I'd, I'd like to first lay a foundation. I, I want us to first see three principles that these opening verses in Ephesians 6 present to us. Now, some of these might be a review to us. I know they will be, but I think they're worth reviewing in many ways. But three principles, very practical, that really guide our understanding in the coming weeks together, all right? They lay a basis for everything else we're going to see in the rest of the series. Three principles. Ready for them? You're ready for them, right? Okay, for a moment I thought we were all were jet lagged. I, I, I'm, I feel this. I, it takes me a moment to respond. And I'm going to spend the greatest bulk on the first principle. The first principle is this. The authentic Christian life is a fight. Would you say it with me? The authentic Christian life is a fight. And I know this is a review, but I'll tell you, it's worth hearing again. Because the point, friends, is that our text tells us in this, kind of counterintuitively, that you can tell a genuine Christian as much from the warfare and conflict in their life as from their peace. Now to that, someone might rightly say, wait a second, one of the ways you can identify a Christian is by their inner peace. In fact, we know Paul says this in Philippians 4, 7, doesn't he? Doesn't Paul say, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says that, right? Or he writes the church in Rome. We read this in Romans 5, 1. Paul says to them, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have that wonderful peace, and therefore we say... Isn't it true then that peace is a fruit of the Spirit? Yes, it is. And, and peace is a characteristic of a Christian. And that when you come into the Christ life, you're no longer at war with God, praise God. So you have peace in your conscience. And, and you have peace when you consider the future. You have peace when you realize what God has done for you. Isn't all that true? Yes. I would say absolutely. But I would add this. God's word is just as insistent in telling us that when you become a follower of Jesus, you've also entered into a new warfare. That there's new conflicts that have been initiated. Because just as on the earthly realm, in the spiritual realm, when you go into war, align with one person, one body, or one country, you immediately make enemies of all the people and forces who are arrayed against your new ally. Therefore, friends, one way you can know that you're an authentic follower of Christ, it's not only through your inner peace. It can also be through conflict. Because the authentic Christian life is a fight. Can I explain this a bit? About 100 years ago, there was a, a brilliant Anglican bishop. His name was J.C. Ryle. He was actually the bishop of Liverpool in England. And he wrote these words. I want to read extensively from him. Ryle wrote, Let me talk to you about true Christianity. There's a vast quantity of religion currently in the world 
That is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes some level of muster. It satisfies sleepy consciences, but it's not good money. It's not the real thing which was called Christianity 1,800 years ago. Then he continues. There are thousands of men and women who go to chapels and churches every Sunday, call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their faith or spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. They know literally nothing of all of that. Then the bishop adds this. Let us consider these propositions. The saddest symptom about many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict or fight in their spiritual lives. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work, they amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money, they go through a scanty round of formal religious services once or even twice a week. But the great spiritual warfare, it's watchings and strugglings, it's agonies and anxieties, it's battles and contests of all this. They appear to know nothing at all. Then he finally adds, do you find in your heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Are you conscious of two principles within you contending for the mastery? Do you feel anything of war in your inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is a strongly probable evidence. The great work of God's sanctification is going on within you. All true saints are soldiers, he writes. An authentic follower of Jesus can be known as much by their inward warfare as by their inward peace. We're all soldiers, friends. And an authentic follower of Jesus can be known as much by their inner warfare as by their inward peace. I don't know if any of you are thinking, okay, I think that's going over the top a bit. I think that's exaggerating a bit. You're coming on too strong. Not necessarily. Can we put it in these kind of terms? I think we'd all kind of agree that the only right response to a, a deadly situation we face in life is passionate action, right? Like, just for example, say you're in your house and you notice it's beginning to burn. Flames are beginning to rise and your life is in danger and you know it. You don't at that moment say, hmm, I wonder which way I'd prefer taken out of here. No. If that's all you do, you clearly have not grasped the situation. It's clear your mind really isn't alive to the seriousness of the situation. But if your mind is actually alive to what is going on, there is then kicking, there's screaming, there's shouting, there's running, there's battling. Anytime you're really alive to a deadly situation, friends, there's a fight in it. There is conflict. In fact, listen to what Jesus said about this. This is the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, Jesus wrote, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered what? Violence. And the violent take it by force. Understand, this is Jesus talking. 
If you want to put that in a modern translation, you could put it this way. Understand this. The kingdom of God always advances through a battle and opposition that the enemy puts up against it. You always will be at war with the enemy. So you know what that means? It means this. Anybody who has any spiritual life in him or her is alert to how urgent the situation is. Because it is a battle against spiritual forces who literally are seeking to destroy us, to devour us. Let's put it in these terms. Just for example, the only thing you absolutely know for sure about your future is that at some point you're going to die, right? The only thing you know about anybody around you is that they're going to die. Doesn't that information by itself create some level of urgency? Wouldn't it lead us to start and make choices that seem countercultural, counterintuitive in ways? Just reflecting on this week, was praying for Dave and Donna, those international workers we bring forward and pray for regularly. And I remember early conversations with Dave and Donna when they were here, part of Southview, working in Calgary. Both had great jobs, good incomes, wonderful home, great three kids, young boys. Life was going well for them. And, and strangely, oddly, their choice was to set all that aside, go through years of training, and head literally to the other side of the world to live in a hostile nation that they might by some means lead some of those individuals there to Jesus Christ. That makes no sense unless finally, oh, now it makes sense, finally, the warfare is around us. I can tell you this. Just from pastoral observation, scripture doesn't put it this way, I don't think. But I would say this. The deadening impulse of sin in us us makes us think, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I want to go too far with that. I have this conviction that sin within us acts something like a narcotic within us. It, It deadens us in some way. It causes sleep within us. That a point of just a little slumber, a little rest, a little folding of the hands to rest. But authentic Christianity, friends, it wakes you up. It makes us see the seriousness of the situation of what hangs in the balance. And if you have, if you're a follower of Jesus, and I'll tell you, if there's never any sense of battling, if if there's never any sense of the need of spiritual exertion in your life, pay attention to that. There's a really good chance you're asleep. Pay attention to that. Think of the exhortations we receive in God's word to strive to enter in, to press into the king, to watch, to stand, to be strong, to labor for the meat that endures, to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, to fight the good fight of faith, not because we're trying to earn some salvation, but because, praise God, it's poured upon us lavishly by God's grace, and we live as soldiers now. How many times does Scripture use that kind of language? So one thing we hold to as we move in the series is that reality. The authentic Christian life, it is a fight. Do we grasp it? Amen.
two more principles really quickly. <laughs> a second principle is this that we'll go through our series. Just want to be upfront. It's that supernatural evil exists. Would you say the phrase? Supernatural evil exists. Just to remember this. This is the word that Paul uses, the description he gives very vividly in Ephesians chapter 6. And he says in Ephesians 6 verse 12, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we're going to be talking more about this in coming weeks. But I know this. I, I know there's some of us here, you might be looking at me right now thinking, come on, really? <laughs> I mean, because I know this. There are people who come to me and, and essentially say, you know, you look like an intelligent person. You talk at times like, yeah, we're on the same page with a lot of things. And, and then you talk at times as though you think the devil is an actual person or actual being. So can I just do this for a moment? Let, let's just kind of clear the ground on this in this way. If you have a lot of struggle with the idea of the reality of the devil and supernatural evil, I'd, I'd like to ask you this. On what grounds to you, do you object to that reality? In, in fact, I'd ask you, if you're here, don't raise your hand or anything in this. I would, would ask you, first of all, do you believe that there is a supernatural being, a God, let's call him? Do you believe there's some kind of life to come, a heaven, an afterlife at all? I mean, do you believe in a meta-nature or a supernature in some sense? I mean, do you believe in the supernatural at all? Do you believe in some kind of personal God, the supernatural in that way? And if you to those questions would say, well, yeah, largely yes, then, then I would ask you this. On what basis then could you possibly deny the idea of an evil supernatural being? Uh, on what basis would you deny that? I mean, maybe you're approaching the teachings of Jesus and, I say, and thinking, I like Jesus, boy, master teacher. I like what he teaches about the golden rule. I like what he teaches about loving neighbors. Remember, Jesus is the same one who said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Okay, that's a bit embarrassing. I'm just going to push that part of Jesus' teaching to the side. I'm going to stick with the golden rule stuff. Be consistent with Jesus. Realize, if you don't take all that Jesus teaches as a whole, he was either a crazy man in some part or just a bold-faced liar. So I'd encourage you, consider why is it that you would deny the existence of an evil supernatural being which scripture talks so clearly of? Or it might be the case that you don't think there is any supernatural realm in that way. You don't think there's any supernatural realm or kind of being. And so you don't believe in any kind of God. And really would say, boy, you're far more consistent in that perspective. But, but I just would say this, if that's your view, if your view is there is no supernatural realm, just let's be clear on this. You can't prove empirically there's no supernatural realm. For you to say that you believe that really the universe is a closed system, just be aware, that's a faith assumption. It's a faith assumption. There's no way you can prove that. that that's a religious conviction, you could say, that you have. I mean, I mean, you can absolutely say, I don't believe in the supernatural. You can deny the supernatural, but you also have to see this. 
You're then in the very same boat that I'm in. We both have faith convictions. We have religious commitments we've made about the supernatural realm. You have yours, I have mine. And so I'd encourage you, even as we walk through the series, for one, I'm just so thankful you're here, reflecting on these matters. But I encourage you to reflect and say, could it be that since I believe in faith, the supernatural doesn't exist, I might come to the point of believing by faith, it does exist. Is there a reasonable be basis by which to believe the supernatural realm exists? Because that will be a basis for what we're looking at in this series together. All right. That's way too quick on a very deep matter. I totally realize that. But a third principle just to touch on is this. We're going to be seeing this. The strength is the Lord's. The battling is ours. Would you read it with me? The strength is the Lord's. The battling is ours. Paul says it this way in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, 10. He says, finally, here it is. Be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of what? His might. His might. What it means to be a Christian is to fight a battle, but to do it in the power of his might. That, that's the secret. That's what we're after. That's what we're going to be looking at together. That God says, there's a battle before you. I will empower you for this battle, not by your own strength, but by mine. To which, just as we closed, I think it, a natural question to ask would be, God, why don't you just do the battling yourself? Just kind of leave us out of it. You do the battle. You got all the strength. Let us step back. Why would God say, there's a great battle. This opponent's going to try to devour you. So prep up. Get my armor. Get my strength. Go get him. Why not you go get him, God? Can I give you a two-week comparison or analogy to try to tie it into Mother's Day? All right. See if this works. If any of you are moms with like three-month-old kids, four- or five-month-old child, uh, you know during that time you carry your child around lovingly, you, that wonderful feeling of a child against your neck and rest, what a great feeling. But you live in the hope there will be a day where they'll no longer need to be nuzzled against your neck, right? You are living to the day when one point you'll say, I think they're ready, and you take your beloved child, you set them down while they're teetering, you step back a bit and say, come to me, come on. And your child, you can't read their mind, but they're thinking, my mother, my mother, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> why do you leave me? We had such a good thing going. These legs, I'm fine just wrapping them around you. I don't need them down on this hard stuff that I'm walking on. But you, mother, you know better than your child does, right? You know by that, think of this, by that simple act, the moment you do that, your living room, wherever it is, you are opening a door of incredible life to them by teaching them to walk. They have no idea, no clue what they are heading into. But you, with that invitation, are saying, I don't want to carry you when you're 18. Come to me, just take a step, because there's so much ahead of you. And in a far too weak analogy, friends, that's what God does with us. God could simply, he's a God of creation, wipe out all his opponents. But he chooses to say, I give my power to you to be my instruments of this gospel, this kingdom. And we, like little children, might say, we like it better when you take care of it. 
But he says, no, you have no idea what I've prepared for you. You I know, have no idea what eternity holds for you. I'm preparing you now for this eternal responsibility that will be beyond your imagining. So you now take steps, lean in me, armor yourself with my armor, rest in my power, and take steps forward. Because as you do, here's my promise, the gates of hell won't be able to stand against you. Praise God. That's what we're going to learn about in the coming weeks. I so hope you can come back as we walk in this wonderful reality. And now let's pray together. And so, Father, with expectancy and, and thanksgiving, we thank you, you entrust to us the, the wonder of being your servants. And we pray we would be winsome ambassadors even this week in relationships we walk with. We pray as well we would be attuned to the battle in which we live and might be encouragers of one another uh, hope givers to one another. And as we go from here, we pray you would use us for your glory. This we pray in the authority of Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen.